All right, good morning. Morning, my name is Jared Lawson. I'm on staff here at the Parkway Church. I'm the pastoral resident, which is a glorified title for an intern, let's be honest. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So, a little over four years ago, I married a foreigner, okay? My wife is from Norway, uh, but she has family scattered all over Europe, and so her grandfather, who lives uh, outside of Paris, we went to go see him one year, and one of the things we like to do when we go visit family is plan a few extra days to kind of run around whatever country that we're in. So we went to go see him, and so I wanted to go see Normandy. So we did. We rented a tiny car that was essentially a golf cart, uh, and we're driving around Normandy, somewhat dangerously, I might add. There's some street signs in France that are just like a blue circle. I didn't know what that meant, so I just prayed and kept driving. Uh, And so we're going and seeing Normandy, and the highlight of the trip for me was when we came to this small little charming town in Normandy called Etretat, or if you're French, they have more Etretat or something weird like that. Um, So we went there. And it's this beautiful town that sits on the northern coast, and it's in between these two uh, 200 to 300 foot white chalk cliffs. Okay, it's beautiful. So we showed up, we're enjoying the town, and we decide we want to walk up on one of the cliffs. There are these rock formations that come off of the cliffs, and the town is famous for one that looks like an elephant. So are we going to go see the elephant rock formation? Let me think about that for zero seconds. Of course we are. So we walk up on the cliff that's on the left side of the town, uh, and as we kind of get to the top, I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty. Okay, there's the beautiful Atlantic Ocean coming in to meet these just majestic white cliffs, beautiful green fields behind us, the town of Etretat off to our right. I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty, yet something happened that immediately changed the mood of the trip for me, okay? So as you're walking along the cliffside, there's this tiny path that's about this big, and on either side is a 250-foot drop. Uh, So being a sane, safe person, I continue to walk past this death trap. However, when I turn around, my insane wife, Claudia, has begun to walk out onto this path. And in an instant, all the joy that I was feeling, right, of beholding this beauty was put to the side as the danger Claudia was putting herself in consumed me. And I said in a very calm yet very urgent voice, Claudia, I have never been more serious in my entire life. Get back here right now. And after seeing the terror in my eyes, she came back. We went to enjoy our trip. We saw the elephant rock and all that fun stuff. Uh, But in an instant, I went from beholding the beauty of all this amazing creation, enjoying this marriage that I get to be a part of, to demanding that Claudia come off that path back to safety and avoid certain death. And so, uh, John is going to do something similar in our passage this morning. We're going to see this shift in 1 John this morning. So up to this point, John has been displaying for us the reality of who our God is, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. He's shown us the beauties of the incarnation, that God has sent his son, that the life has been made manifest to us and we have seen it, that he is faithful to cleanse us of our sins. He's our advocate before the Father and we know him. And because we know the Son and share in fellowship with him, our sins are forgiven, we know the Father, we've overcome the evil one, and God's word abides in us. John has shown us all this, we've seen its beauty, we've tasted its goodness, and now, based on all those good things, John is going to turn and say, do not love the world or the things in the world. So let's pray, and we'll get into God's word. Father, 
Lord, is it, a, is, it is a humbling thing to come before you uh, to worship the king of the universe. Father, yet it is our greatest delight to know you, to share in fellowship with you, yet there is uh, one chief enemy against that, and that's the devil, his evil world. And so I pray, Lord, despite my inability to communicate your word with the glory that it should be communicated, I pray that you would give us a glorious view of who you are and a greater hatred for the things of the world. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So immediately, we have to see what John means by love the world. Okay, that can sound pretty generic. One of my biggest pastoral pet peeves, I have a lot of them, but one of my biggest pastoral pet peeves is when preachers just say a bunch of generic Christian things for the express purpose of firing up the crowd. So about a month ago, I was listening to a real, real popular preacher, and when they're preaching, they always have a handheld mic, but they don't hold it like a normal person, they hold the mouth part, that's key. Uh, And so he said this, when you take something that is common and you anoint it with purpose, your pain then becomes the doorway to the gates of heaven. And then they just kind of wait for the amens to flow in. That doesn't mean anything. You're just wasting everyone's time. It drives me absolutely insane. John is not doing that, okay? So let's see what John means by don't love the world. So first, what does John mean by love? What does John mean by love? We use the word love all the time. We love our spouse. We love our family. But then we also love Froyo, like Jeff, right? So what does John mean here by love? And here... John is talking about setting your affections on, taking pleasure in, or seeking your satisfaction from something. Okay, in this case, the world. Setting your affections on, or seeking your ultimate pleasure in the world. Let's look at a few other places in the scriptures where love is used in the same way. Luke eleven forty three. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. John 3.19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So that's what John means by love, setting your affections on or seeking your ultimate satisfaction from the world. So that's what he means by love. What does he mean by the world? What does he mean by the world? We're going to talk in a little bit about the things in the world in a second because John's going to get more specific in verse 16. But what does he mean here by the general world? Here he's talking about the devil's dominion, the sinful evil realm that is hostile to God and his kingdom. The devil's sinful evil realm that fights against, that is hostile to, that attacks God and his kingdom. This world doesn't know God. John writes of Jesus saying in his gospel, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. This world hates Christ and his followers because they don't belong to the world. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. This is the world that through Christ's redemption, God's people are meant to be overcoming. 
right? We saw last week in 1 John 2.13, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. 1 John 5, 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So that's what John means by the world. The devil's dominion, the evil, sinful realm that is hostile to, that fights against God and his kingdom. John does not mean the people of the world. Uh, The New Testament is filled with passages that we should love our neighbor, even our enemy, right? John does not mean the physical created world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein, Psalms 24 tells us. Most importantly, perhaps for us, John does not mean what we typically mean when we call things worldly, right? We in the Bible Belt South have such a tendency to think like the Amish or Mennonites, right? We have our little Christian bubble and then of things filled with just explicit Christian things, and then everything outside of us is worldly, right? That is not in any way a biblical worldview, right? First of all, there are tons of things outside of us that are just morally neutral. And then second of all, there are tons of things outside of us that are actually good gifts from God that we end up demonizing, right? So music is perhaps a clear example. Any music that is not explicitly Christian, we call what? secular, right? He listens to secular music in his car, right? So when I became a Christian in my zeal for the Lord, one of the first things I did to prove my zeal was to go on my iTunes account and delete everything that wasn't a Christian song. So you know what I was left with? A bunch of bad songs, (laughs) right? I was trying to be extra godly, but I was actually demonizing a good gift from God, Right? Alcohol is another thing that the scriptures overwhelmingly affirm as a good gift from God, meant for your enjoyment, not in drunkenness, of course, but meant for your enjoyment. But for many of us in the South, it is the primary mark of someone that's worldly. He sure is nice, but I saw a beer in his fridge. Right? It's the primary mark of someone that's worldly in our eyes, yet it's a good gift from God, the scriptures tell us. Let me read this quote from Paul in 1 Timothy to make this abundantly clear. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So Paul, the Bible, just said that thing that we do all the time in the South is from the teaching of demons and a mark of those who are departing from the faith, right? So we need to grasp this. John is not giving us a blank check to kind of legalistically condemn anything we want to call worldly, right? Rather, every time John uses the word world, he's talking about the devil's sinful, evil dominion that is opposed to God and his kingdom. He's talking about the darkness that is opposed to the light. The darkness that's opposed to the light. So when I was in high school, uh, I went on a mission trip that was a total of five days. And to be fair, one of those days was a beach day uh, and another one of those days was a shopping day. So we had three days of solid kingdom advancement. And I went on this mission trip because I'm holy and you make such sacrifices when you're a holy man. Uh, And one night uh, I got in a debate with one of my buddies over a song lyric that we were singing during worship. 
And the the lyric went like this, I want to be near, near to your heart, loving the world but hating the dark. I said, this is ridiculous, this is heretical. John specifically tells us, do not love the world, right? And he said, no, what are you talking about? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? The world is good, it's got good gifts from the Father in it. So what's happening in that argument? We're both using the same word, world, to argue for different biblical truths. And in other places in the scriptures, the scriptures overwhelmingly affirm the world, use the word world to mean the good gifts from the Father. But here, John is using the word world to talk about the devil's evil realm. And his point is, believers, Christians, are not to set their affections on or seek their satisfaction from the evil realm that is opposed to God. He has already shown us, you know the Father, your sins are forgiven, God's word abides in you, you have overcome the evil one through the power of Christ. And now, because of that beautiful reality, his main point throughout this entire passage is going to be, because of that, because you know the Father, Christian, do not love the worthless world when your God is worthy of all your affection. Do not love the worthless world when your God is worthy of all your affection. Okay, John, so why? Why should we not love the world? It seems a bit overdramatic. Is that really that realistic? Why? Do you have some reason, perhaps, why we should not love the world? And he says, yes. First of all, do not love this worthless world because those who do love the world have no love for the Father. Those who do Love the world, have no love for the Father. Look at the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So here John is talking about the object of your affections, right? That love that fills the human heart. You're going to love something, but John's saying you can't love both. You're either gonna love the Father or the world, but you can't love both. And love for the world reveals that you have no love for the Father. If anyone is continually setting their satisfaction on or seeking pleasure from the world that is opposed to God, then you have no love for God. You have no love for God. So during the first great awakening in 1730s, 1740s, what was essentially happening all throughout New England was that the word of God would be preached and those listening were having these kind of overwhelming, ecstatic experiences, right? Where they would fall off their chairs and they would cry out to God and they would weep and praise God for pouring out his spirit upon them. But then one of the interesting things is that that was happening to virtually everybody in the colonies, but the next week, the majority of them would just go right back to sleeping with people in the town, these having these lavished parties, apathy towards any type of obedience, envy of their neighbor, constant bickering, things like that. And so Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was a pastor in New England, had to figure out, how do I tell, how do I discern who is genuinely being awoken by the Spirit of God and who is just experiencing what he called false enthusiasm, something he considered to be the devil's counterfeit to the genuine work of God. And the conclusion he came to was if someone has been genuinely awoken by the Spirit of God, they've been transformed and given a new heart and had their affections set on him. And the sinful things of the world you don't love anymore, and the things of God that you once despised are now seen as most precious to you. Let me read this quote from Edwards. And this is indeed the main difference between the joy of the hypocrite, 
those experiencing false enthusiasm, and the joy of the true saint. The former rejoices in himself. Self is the first foundation of his joy, and the latter rejoices in God. The hypocrite has his mind pleased and delighted in the first place with his own privileges and the happiness which he supposes he has attained or shall attain to. True saints have their mind in the first place inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. And this is the spring of all their delight. It is the joy of their joy. Edwards is saying those who are Christians, those who have genuinely been stirred by the Spirit, have been transformed and had their affections set on their Savior, rewired and set on their Savior. In the sinful world that you once loved, you now hate. It's seen as the enemy. It's something to be fought against and overcome. And John is getting at this same idea. Christians have been given a new heart and had their affections set on their Savior. Paul says something similar to the Colossians. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If a believer is meant to be oriented toward the things of God, then of course they're not to set their affections on the objects and allurements of the world that would distract us from total engagement with him. John is saying those who know the Father, those who know him who is from the beginning cannot love the world. They cannot love the world. And therefore the opposite is also true. Those who love the sinful world have no love for the Father. John has shown us since the beginning of his letter that the sinful evil world and the Father are fundamentally opposed 1 John 1.5, and this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John will eventually tell us later in his letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So they're fundamentally opposed. And so to love the evil world is actually to participate in active rebellion against God. If we say we have fellowship with him when we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. You cannot walk in the dark and the light at the same time. And if you think you can, if you think you can be a Christian and have your security of salvation and all these different things while still loving this evil world, constantly seeking your pleasure from this evil world that hates God, then I'm sorry to tell you, you've only experienced false enthusiasm for God. You've only experienced the devil's counterfeit to the genuine work of God, trying to love the world, trying to love the Father while you're still in love with the world, as John Calvin said, is like trying to use a round ball as a cup. You're not going to get to enjoy any fresh drink because the water's just going to run right off. So John is telling us, he's showing us that the object of your love, the object of your affections reveals the reality of your heart. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone is constantly seeking their satisfaction from this evil world, then they do not truly love God. So, do not love the worthless world when your God is worthy of all your affection. Okay, John, we get that point. 
If we love the world, we have no love for the Father, but why else? What other reasons might you have not to love the world? Secondly, John is going to say, don't love this worthless world because all that the world has to offer is a grotesque counterfeit compared to what is from your Father. All that the world has to offer is a grotesque counterfeit compared to what is from your Father. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John's given us the general category of the world, this demonic realm that's opposed to God, but here he's going to get a bit more specific about the things in the world, right? Specifically three things, what Charles Spurgeon calls the devil's trinity, right? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or some of your translations might say pride and possessions. Let's look a bit closer at these. So the first thing that is in the world is the desires of the flesh. Uh, Gratifying the evil, sinful desires of the flesh is something that characterizes the world all throughout the scriptures. Let me read uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And here John means the same. Living in the passions of your flesh. Living in the flesh is what you lived in before you were redeemed, before you were adopted and brought into God's family. But now as a Christian, you put on Christ and you walk in the Spirit. Living in the flesh, gratifying the evil sinful desires of the flesh is what characterizes those who are dead in their sin, those who walk counter to the Spirit of God and those who should expect nothing but wrath. And so naturally the question would be, do you put the flesh to death? Do you take the flesh and crucify it and put on Christ and walk in repentance that the flesh might have no foothold? Or do you know areas where you're still loving the flesh but you think it's not that big a deal? You allow that to fester and grow. Do you put the flesh to death? second thing we see that is in the world is the desires of the eyes. The Bible talks a lot about the desires of the eyes, uh, even from the very beginning, Genesis 3.6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. When the woman saw that it was a delight to the eyes, What characterizes Israel's rebellious state in the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the summary statement that the book of Judges give us to show how rebellious Israel was. Jesus also teaches us in Matthew 6 that if the eyes are bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. So here, John is talking about the capacity of your eyes to seduce us towards evil. So don't think TV in general, I mean, you can use discernment over what you watch, but John is talking about seeing and allowing yourself to be drawn into sin, 
Okay, pornography is the example that is so often used, and rightly so, but it's not the only example, right? Do you perhaps allow your eyes to gaze at another person's life and allow it to draw you into comparison or covetousness, right? Or perhaps fantasy? I wonder what it would be like to be with that person. I bet they would treat me with the respect that I deserve. I bet they would care for me in the way that someone should. Look at that person's circumstances. If I had their circumstances, my life wouldn't be so horrible, right? We look with our eyes and allow ourselves to be drawn into lust or bitterness and allow that to fester and grow in our hearts. John is saying a key characteristic of the world is foolish eyes that obscure higher and better realities, right? It's like an insect flying into one of those bug zappers. So the eyes lead us towards our own destruction. Do you watch the desires of your eyes? Are you active in watching the desires of your eyes? You set them on your savior, the founder and the perfecter of your faith so you might not be drawn into sin. The last thing we see that's in the world is the pride of life. Here, John is talking about us taking pride or arrogance in uh, our possessions or our means of living, right? Your livelihood. That's why some of your translations might say pride in possessions. Okay, the idea is everything that makes up your life, what you have and what you do. Perhaps the, the best example would be the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So again, notice that possessions is not what's evil, it's the pride in possessions. It's not money that's evil, it's the love of money. John is talking about instead of looking to God as our provider, we look to ourselves take great pride in what we can store up for ourselves in this life. So the question again is, do you store up your treasures in heaven or are you like the rich fool of Luke 12? And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Are you rich towards God? Or do you look to yourself and boast in your treasures here? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? All of these things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, John is saying that's from the world, that is not from your Father. See, this world is not this passive entity, right, but rather is a rival dominion that fights against the kingdom of God, and the primary way it fights against the kingdom of God is by stealing people's affections away from him. 
Instead of walking in the spirit, we gratify the evil desires of the flesh. Instead of taking our eyes and beholding the majesty of our Savior, we allow our eyes to lead us towards sinful things. Instead of looking to God as our good shepherd who provides all things for us, we look to ourselves. And we take great pride in what we can accumulate for ourselves. John is saying, what is from the world, what the world has to offer you is nothing but evil and vile things that lead you towards your own destruction by distracting you from the one who is life. The world offers you a venomous snake wrapped in a present. So my wife just had, uh, I say my wife because most people say me and my wife just had a baby, but that's not accurate in any way. My wife just had a little... uh, half foreigner baby, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what babies like came with in the olden days, but nowadays when you get a kid, when the hospital gives you a kid, they come with these little razor blades attached to their fingers uh, called fingernails, and when my son, Harvey, is trying to self-soothe, he'll take his little baby razors and just claw his sweet little cheeks, and so he's just got all these Oh, whoops. Got all these claw marks all over his face. And that is a sense, uh, in a sense, what we do when we love the world. We love the things that are of the world. We think we are pursuing pleasure, but really just harming ourselves. We're loving what leads to our own destruction. So that's what's from the world, but what is from the Father? We see in the text that all the things that are in the world are not from the Father, but what is from the Father? James tells us every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. Right, good food is a good gift from your father. So I'm dyslexic, uh, and if you don't know what that means, I'm just one of those people who can't read good. And so when I was a kid, reading a menu was the most terrifying thing in the world. Okay, we get this menu with all this stuff to read, and then the waiter's going to come test us. Everyone's going to know what they want, and I haven't gotten past the appetizers. So what I would do is I would just find something that I liked, and then for the rest of my life, anytime we ate at that place, that's what I was getting. So if it was Tex-Mex, I'm getting quesadillas, right? If it's uh, any sort of Asian place, chicken fried rice. Uh, So basically for the first 22 years, I had a total of nine meals. And so when I got married, my wife, who's a huge foodie, uh, would encourage me to branch, branch out. And in my desire to please her, I would. And I found out I like most everything, right? And every time I tried something that I'd never tried before and I loved it, Claudia would say, you have been depriving yourself of worship. God has given you all this good food that you've just been ignoring because you're scared to read a menu. You've been depriving yourself of worship. Good food is a good gift from your father. Good relationships, your friends, your family are a good gift from your father. When we found out that we were coming uh, to McKinney, that we were gonna come to Parkway while we were still in Charlotte going to seminary, Uh, Claudia and I began to pray for a lot of things, but one of the specific things that we started to pray for was, God, I just pray that you would give us good, deep friendship with people that we haven't even met yet. Good, lasting friendships with people that we haven't met yet. And so when we came here, uh, Tim and Kelsey Hollis were the only two people in the staff family that we didn't know yet. And basically for the whole first month, Every time we would hang out with him and leave, Claudia and I would both say, wow, God is, God is so good to answer prayer. God is so good to answer prayer. We love the Hollises. Eh, let me say that more accurately. We love Kelsey Hollis, okay? The other one, the other Hollis is okay, okay? Good gifts from your father, your hobbies, the way God has wired you to just enjoy random things, the beauties of creation are all good gifts from your father. But what is the ultimate gift from your father? 
What is the ultimate gift to you from the Father? For God so loved the world that he sent his Son, the only Son of God, begotten before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate. The Son, who is eternally from the Father, begotten of the Father, but then is also sent from the Father. Why? To destroy the works of the devil, yes. To cleanse us of our sins and make us white as snow, yes. But ultimately, to bring us back into fellowship with the God that we separated ourselves from. Or as Athanasius, the early church father, would say, the true Son of God by nature has caused us to become sons and daughters of God by grace. And now your ultimate love and joy and peace and true satisfaction and the fulfillment of every desire you've ever had is found through knowing and communing with the one that you've been created for. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. So we are. That's what's from the Father. Every good and perfect gift and fellowship with him because we've been united to his son. John is saying all that the world has to offer you is incomparable to what is from your father. Do not love this worthless world. Don't trade the beach for a grain of sand. Don't leave the five-star restaurant to search for your food in the dumpster outside. For you, O God, have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and their wine abound. In your presence, O God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, O God, there's pleasure forevermore. If you love what is from the world over what is from your Father, you're rejecting fresh bread and a cool drink to eat sand and drink tar. Or as Charles Spurgeon would say, your affections are meant for something better than these transient and defiled things. So let not your heart's love flow out to things soiled and base. Set your affections on the things above, not on the things of the earth. What is from the world is evil and vile and not from your Father. So do not love the worthless world when your God is worthy of all your affection. Okay, John, so you've shown us we love the world, we don't love the Father, everything that's from the world is evil and not from the Father, but anything else, any other reasons you want to give us not to love the world? He's going to say, lastly, do not love this worthless world because the world is fleeting. This world is fleeting. Look at the first half of verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. This evil world is fading Why would you set your affections on the things of the world? Not only are they not from the Father, but they're passing away, right? Setting your affections on the things of the world isn't only evil, it's foolish, right? It's foolish. It's like taking your most treasured possessions and storing them on a sinking ship. It's foolish, but why? Why is the world fading? Why is the darkness passing away? What has John shown us? It's because the true light is already shining, because of all that has been set in motion by God through the sending of his son, that all things that are opposed to God's kingdom is doomed. It's doomed. So in this sinful, evil world, there may be enticement, but there's no future. 
There's no future. John is warning you, if you love what is from the world, you're buying the beach house as the hurricane is approaching. Right? There's no future in this world. So the evil world is vanishing, but God's children will remain forever. Look at the rest of verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So one of the things that we've seen all throughout uh, the letter of 1 John is the link between our identity as sons and daughters of God and our obedience to God. Okay, that obedience does not cause us to become sons and daughters of God, but rather is the result of being brought into God's family. Listen to Jesus's words in the Gospel of John. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, Lest you be tempted towards legalism, you cannot gain abiding forever eternal life through doing the will of God because it's never been up to you. You've been given to the Son by the Father, and He's the one that's not going to lose you. He is the one who will raise you up on the last day. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of John, my sheep hear my voice and I know them They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So again, we see first and foremost that we've been brought into God's family completely by God himself and now our obedience to the will of God is a reflection of our love for God. Right? He's already chosen you, caused you to trust in his son and brought you into his family. And now your obedience to the will of God, doing the will of God, is simply living out the relationship that you've already been brought into. Right? And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Or to say it in another way, you reflect the fellowship you have with the father by doing his will. You reflect the fellowship that you already have with God by doing his will. John is saying the child of God, the true child of God, sees all that the world has to offer with its evil lusts and its fleeting pleasures and gladly chooses eternal fellowship with his God walking in his will. This evil world is passing away, but those who are in Christ Those who cannot be snatched from his hand, those who reflect their love for God by walking in his will, will abide forever. Listen to St. Augustine. Listen to Augustine commenting on this verse. The river of temporal things hurries one along, but like a tree sprung up beside the river is our Lord Jesus Christ. He assumed flesh, died, and rose again, ascended into heaven. It was his will to plant himself in a manner beside the river of the things of time, Are you rushing down the stream to headlong deep? Hold fast to the tree. Is the love of the world whirling you on? Hold fast to Christ. For you he became temporal that you might become eternal. What the world offers you is not only worthless, but it's fleeting. But what God offers you is eternal. So do not love the worthless world when your God is worthy of
of all your affection. Now, I have to clarify something because when we hear a sermon like this, when we hear a sermon like this, there's almost two sinful reactions that kind of creep up into our hearts. The first is obviously legalism. Uh, do any passage with do's and don'ts, we immediately start to think legalistically. Do the will of the Father, don't love the world, got it. We're already thinking about ways we can earn it in our own strength. Uh, the second sinful reaction is actually those of you who hear this rather harsh warning and just immediately assume John's talking to somebody else, right? He's talking to the person next to you, or perhaps you've conjured up someone in your mind that's a worse sinner than you, right? And so you ignore the warning. Both of these fundamentally under, misunderstand the gospel. So my grandmother grew up in this tiny town in Georgia and train tracks came right through the town that was about 20 yards away from her house. And when my grandfather and her got married, my grandfather was not from the town, but when they got married, uh, they were staying there one night and the train came through. And my grandfather literally thought that a tornado was on top of the house. And so he jumped on top of my grandmother to protect her and him jumping on her is what woke her up, not the train. And so she shoved him off, told him it was just a train, told him to calm down, and then she went back to sleep. You see, she had heard the train so many times that even though it was deafeningly loud, she was asleep. It didn't even wake her up. Right? She couldn't even hear it anymore. And there may be some of us here who have heard the gospel, who have heard God's word preached so many times Yet we've been in church our whole life, we've done tons of Bible studies, we're constantly surrounded by Christian programs, yet we're deaf to the warning. We're deaf to the warning. Both of those reactions fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. The legalist is like the father who neglects his child because he's busy reading parenting books, right? You're trying to earn it in your own strength where John is telling you to live out a relationship that you've been brought into. The second, the so-called grace abuser, who really has never experienced grace at all, has only come to God in the first place so they can have their evil world now and have their holy heaven later. Right? They don't actually want anything to do with God himself. Both of these reactions fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. You see, the reality of the gospel is, though we're, we were created to worship and honor and commune with our God, we turned and longed to be our own God, Right? We gladly loved the world and had no love for the Father. We hated the Father. We loved the things that were from the world, all the things that were in the world. We walked in the desires of our flesh, gratifying the desires of the body. We longed to do what was right in our own eyes. We looked to ourselves constantly to accumulate treasures here and take great pride in the kingdoms that we build for ourselves. We couldn't care less about the things eternal. We want our pleasures now. Yet, in spite of our hateful rebellion, while we were still sinners, God sent his son to die for you, to break your chains, and to bring you back to him, to share in fellowship with him. Christ the son became man that you might know God. He experienced death that you might experience resurrection life. He became temporal that you might share in eternal Fellowship with him, the true son of God by nature has caused us to become sons and daughters of God by grace. That is who your God is. That's the gospel. Don't trade true satisfaction for perverted pleasures. Don't trade eternal joy for fleeting vanity. Don't love the worthless world when your God is worthy 
of all your affection. Let's pray. Father, we know that it's only by your Spirit's work that we could even love you. Father, if it was left up to us, we would constantly love the world. We'd always be turned towards ourselves, looking for our own pleasures, the things that uh, would make us happy, the things that we want to gain for ourselves. Yet, despite our rebellion, you turned our eyes to you. You're the one that changed our hearts. You're the one that rewired our affections. And it's only because you are good and loving and faithful. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts, oh God, would be changed. Even if we've been believers our whole lives, as we're tempted towards evil things, you would make us hate those things. Lord, you would make yourself more glorious in our eyes. We would see knowing you as the chief end of our being and praising you and, Lord, glorifying you for the goodness you have shown to us. We love you and praise you and pray that your spirit would work in our hearts now. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.